0: Good morning, good morning. It is March the 16th. That means it's 316. That means it's Good News Gospel Day. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I am Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. The good news of the gospel uh, is Jesus Christ. I mean, it, it, in, in really short order, the good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk about Good News Day actually at the top of the second hour. I'm going to go through a lot of the 316 verses of the Bible, obviously focusing in on John 316, which you probably know by heart. And if you don't, today's a good day to get into the Word of God, that the Word of God could get into you, that as you get out there into the world that God so loves and the world squeezes you, which it will, um, what will come out will be, well, today, the good news, the good news the grace and the truth of the gospel. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day, which, you know, cleverly should have been John 3, 16, but isn't. Uh, it's Matthew twenty two thirty seven 37 to 39. Jesus is responding here um, to a question um, about the commandments. You know, people are keeping a list. They want to check it twice. They want to make sure that they're on the right side of the... Uh, uh, good deed, bad deed ledger. You know, they want to weigh it out. Um, Jesus uh, is really clear that that's, um, that's, not, uh, that's not ultimately how it's going to work. He came to fulfill the law. And so the one who not only gave the law in the beginning, but the one who came to fulfill the law says this in answer to a question about the law. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. So note what Jesus says. First of all, it's not a suggestion. It's a commandment, and he leads with, you must. Not you might or you may or maybe you will, but you must. You must love You could spend a lot of time unpacking what that word means, but what does it mean for you and I to love God, to love God? Well, Jesus um, makes really clear. It means first and foremost that we acknowledge him as the Lord who is our God. You must love the Lord, your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And then without being asked, Jesus says, there's a second commandment that's equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. So loving God in the ways that Jesus commands here begins with a description of the nature and the relationship that we have with God. You must love God as Lord. You must love God as your God. That's the first order of business, the personal, the restoration of the personal relationship between the individual and God. And that happens through Jesus Christ. Love God as your God, enthrone him as Lord of your life. And only then does Jesus start unpacking the holistic nature of the love that we are to have for God. Love God with undivided affection. Love God first in our hearts. Not, not, not like a first among equals, but first, chief, primary, second to no other and none other. Love God before children or grandchildren or spouse. Love above and beyond country or the needy or the self. Love God over and above them all. God comes first when it comes to our affection, devotion, worship, allegiance, adoration, praise. And to amplify the point, Jesus says, love God with all your soul. And so you say to yourself, hmm, how does the soul differ from the heart? Well, one way to think about this passage is to say, well, the heart, when Jesus says, love God with all your heart, he is actually talking about physical reality. Um, Love God with uh, your life, with your heart, the every beat of it, the heart of flesh beating within your chest. If he's talking about our physical heart, then he commands us to love God with all of it, every moment of our lives, every heartbeat, love God with your temporal time and your corporeal flesh, love God, but not only the flesh, love God with your soul, right? So, um, put all your eggs in this one Easter basket, put the full weight of your eternal hope on God's redemptive grace. And then for good measure, Jesus reminds us to love God with the fullness of our minds, every thought, every, every thought captive to Christ, a mind not conformed to the patterns and ways of the thinking of the world, but a mind renewed and transformed by the word of God, a mind where every thought um, is aligned with the thought of the father, the heart of the father, the will of the father, the very mind of Christ, as the apostle Paul would later say, love God with every thought. And when your mind wanders off, we'll then ask God to bring it back to him, his character and his ways. So much is rightly made of the second commandment that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, but let us make much more of the first and the greatest commandment, that we should love the Lord our God. And out of the overflow of the love that we have for God, God will love others through us. Friend, love God today with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And you'll come to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus says so, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Next up, Ben Johnson. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. This is Faith Radio. I
2: was lost.
0: I was in chains. The world had a hold of me. My heart was a stone. I was covered in-
2: This
1: is my right. Right given by God to live a free life, to live in freedom.
0: Ben Johnson is back. You can find what he's writing at washingtonstand.com, where he serves as a senior reporter and editor. He also tweets at the rights writer. Good morning, Ben.
1: Good morning, Carmen.
0: What in the world is going on at Stanford Law School?
1: well nothing good unfortunately there was a, a horrible event uh, just this past thursday march 9th where uh, a federal judge judge Kyle Duncan was uh, speaking he was invited by the federalist society to um, to talk about his point of view and his experience on the bench and he was shouted down immediately by a whole group of students now we've seen this play out again and again uh, you know everywhere that uh, anyone who's basically right of center goes on campus there's usually a protest we saw it with uh, Kristen Wagner of the Alliance Defending Freedom and several others over the years and I think we've talked about some of them. This one though was a little bit different because not only was there a left wing student component, but then the Dean of diversity uh, uh, diversity um, Equity, and Inclusion spoke up and had this written speech already prepared uh, which sort of raises your idea that perhaps they worked in cahoots together. But she sided with the students. She told, uh, she told the judge that uh, he had, his work had caused harm to people. Now, that's significant for those of us who are people of faith, because his primary work was that he had been a lecturer at Regent University, but he had spent two years as general counsel of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. His primary job was defending Christian rights from assaults by the U.S. government, uh, by state and local governments, and by uh, institutions that wanted to discriminate against Christians. So he was trying to prevent harm, and yet he's accused of standing up uh, and being someone who is imposing harm on others.
0: Uh, So this just happened to Charlie Kirk yesterday at UC San Diego, Um, and I... um, or maybe it was UCLA. I've, I've not fully read in on that. Um, but I, I feel like it's getting more and more difficult for people of a particular viewpoint, in this case, conservative viewpoint, um, even when invited, even when they've jumped through all the hoops and they've satisfied all of the on-campus requirements, um, even if they're invited and um, and on and on and on, it's getting more and more difficult for um, a particular viewpoint to be to hurt to be heard, because people who fancy themselves as um, as liberal are in fact illiberal. Can you can you address that?
1: Yes, and uh, you're absolutely right. When uh, that's the effect uh, of so many of these, you know, that originally the the idea of a university was that you explored as many ideas as possible. Uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote so beautifully about it when he established the University of Virginia, for example. Uh, He believed that truth will always out, that people should explore as many ideas as possible, and that eventually the human mind, given to us by God, will be able to sort through all the claims and find the truth. Um, And particularly when it comes to law, our entire system of law is based on the dispassionate pursuit of justice, which means that... You have the two adversarial sides. Each one argues for his position or her position, uh, either in favor or uh, opposed to whatever the position is, and the jurors or the judge decides which is true. Uh, instead, now we're going to the idea of feelings, and ideology is reigning overall a particular uh, secular ideology. The entire thing sort of reminds me of the very first chapter of the Tape Letters. Uh, there's a, a wonderful passage there, where uh, Uncle Screwtape is telling Wormwood, whatever you do, you don't need to make your your, uh, uh, guardian—he's the guardian demon— you don't need to keep your uh, human being necessarily thinking as an atheist. Simply keep him from thinking. Do not arouse in him the idea of rationality, because any argument that you make is shifting this onto the enemy's ground. The enemy could argue as well. He's talking about God. And once you awaken in him reason, who knows where his thoughts will go? keep him based in his feelings. And that's essentially what is happening to the entire pursuit of law, where above all, we need truth, facts, and rationality.
0: All right, we're going to continue our conversation with Ben Johnson here in just a moment. Um, I'd love to hear your feedback on this this morning. You can always text me, eight seven seven You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. When we come back, we're going to talk about The way a question might be framed on a test because it's looking for a particular political answer about um, who constitutes particular viewpoints in the United States of America. Does that sound like a legitimate test question to you? That's up next on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show featured on the Faith Radio Network. There is a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share at MyFaithRadio.com. My guess is you spend a fair amount of time on social media. So where do you spend your time? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube? Well, have you followed or liked Faith Radio on those platforms? I would invite you to do so. I'm there as well. If you want to check out uh, my personal pages, you could connect with me individually. We would love to have you uh, use the resources that we have produced and are creating and posting on social media for you to share with others. We got all kinds of stuff from graphics to, you know, Bible verses. I don't know. There's all kinds of stuff. Go check it out on your social media. Connect with us on Faith Radio's social media. And, you know, let's get the word out to others. All right. Back to the show again. Thanks for listening. Love connecting with you at myfaithradio.com.
2: All
0: right, we're uh talking with Ben Johnson, he's a rights ri- the rights writer, and he is uh, a senior reporter and editor at the Washington Stand. You can read what he's writing at washingtonstand.com. Um, Ben. Um, I I took some AP classes in high school. I don't remember anything like um, a question on an AP government exam in Fairfax County, um, Virginia, a multiple choice question asking students, which of the following is an accurate comparison of liberals versus conservatives? Now, first of all, the word liberal with a small L and the word conservative with a small C, what do those words mean to you?
1: Typically, we're talking about political points of view. So a a liberal would be someone who favors more government intervention, uh, has a a left of center view when it comes to social issues. And conservatives generally uh, prefer a smaller government, constitutional government and uh, more private uh, views and and tend to be um, uh, more conservative when it comes to things like abortion and marriage.
0: So I don't hear anywhere in your description whether or not someone is young, middle-aged or old. I don't hear anywhere in your description whether or not someone is black or white um, or any other uh, eth- uh, you know, ethnic derivative. I don't hear in your description whether or not people have been to college or not. I don't hear in your description which part of the country people live in. And yet all of the potential answers to this question on this AP government exam were about putting people in boxes, young white males, middle-aged urban lesbian, college-educated black male professionals, or white upper-middle-class suburban males?
1: Yeah, and, and what you're reading are the exact words from this question uh, from the AP government class uh, that they asked, if if you were to uh, identify uh, one, one group uh, and type, figure out whether they were liberal or conservative... Which one would be liberal and which one would be conservative? And the categories you mentioned are the only ones that they list. They don't say, uh, you know, prefers more government spending, wants lower taxes, things of that sort. As you say, it's, um, you know, for example, middle-aged urban lesbian versus Catholic Midwestern middle-aged male. So uh, that's that's the only idea. The, as you say, these are essentially boiled down to groups that uh, in many cases are based on ethnic identity or other unchosen attributes, uh, and that have absolutely nothing to do with the way that you view the world, which impoverishes everyone. Uh, Part of what um, uh, we're supposed to be doing during school is to learn philosophy, to learn uh, the different approaches to government. And you may have one group that is predominantly one way, but that's not always the case. Uh, We've seen a massive shift uh, over the last 50 years in African-Americans from the Republican Party up through Eisenhower in 1960 to the Democratic Party after 1964. And the same way Southern white males were entirely Democratic until that point and have largely shifted to the Republican Party. So these these sorts of classifications are not only uh, simply wrong, but they change over time. So. This, this is not the way that you determine what someone believes. You don't look at someone and know where they fall. Um, our, our mutual friend Ryan Baumberger could attest to that. Uh, so many uh, African-American Christians that we know would attest to that, that you can't simply look at someone and say, I know what he believes. That's one of the most racist things that anyone could say.
0: Yeah, I just think it's it's educating students to profile people based on their race, their gender, their education, their the region of the country that they're from, or their religion. All of which is not not American. It's not American to profile people based on um, these attributes. I mean, like we should talk to one another and find out what people actually think, and therefore why they stand where they stand on a particular issue. And uh, I mean, yeah, it's just it's horrific in terms of an educational process. So thank you for. Lifting it up today, I do want to talk with you about um, something that the president said the other day, which you know I, I dealt with uh, here at, in part, but I really appreciate um, the the article posted at WashingtonStand.com com um, by yours truly, and it is about when the president called transgender bans quote close to sinful. Um, Pope Francis calls gender ideology dangerous colonial. Ideology. Talk, talk with us about these, um, these comments made by world leaders, Pope Francis and the President of the United States. Um, and I think where it's intended to lead people in terms of their thinking:
1: Well, it was a kind of a shocking comment to anyone who has a biblically based worldview that uh, the president says being opposed to transgender surgeries for uh, unemancipated minors is close to sinful. Um, you know, obviously, there's, there's no commandment, thou shalt amputate or anything of that sort. When it comes to uh, the Pope, though, the Pope said that gender ideology is uh, an extremely dangerous uh, ideology, that it's a colonial export. And I thought that was particularly uh, meaningful, because if you look at most of the countries around the world, the vast majority of people do not share this point of view, uh, and particularly in areas where faith is predominant. So in, in the article, I not only go through the Pope's comments, which are a pretty stinging rebuke to the uh, president, who is only the second Catholic president we've ever had, always describes himself as a devout Catholic, uh, wears rosary beads around his uh, wrist all the time. Uh, so for the, the infallible head of his church to to say something uh, that opposes him uh, so diametrically is, is a pretty big rebuke. But at the same time, uh, The Biden administration has been using our tax dollars to the tunes of millions of dollars to try and export uh, this gender ideology, and they have run into a brick wall uh, all over the world. For example, the uh, president of Uganda made a a comment just uh, last month. He said, we are not going to follow people who are lost, and he's talking about those of us in the West. Uh, As far as they're concerned, this reflects on every one of us who's an American or a European, uh, he says, uh, these Europeans are not normal. They don't listen. They don't respect other people's views, and they want to turn the abnormal into normal and force it on others. We shall not agree. They, and he goes on. He was speaking in a church, and he's citing his biblically-based views. So uh, that's one president among many. In the article, I go through several, but uh We forget because we are swimming in this ideology. We think that everyone around the world thinks the way that a secular American or secular Westerner thinks. And in fact, the point of view of uh, those of us who uh, hold a biblical worldview on these issues, those who are members and listen to uh, and support Faith, uh, Faith Radio Network, that view is by far the most predominant and majority view around the world.
0: Yeah, I just think that um, when you, as you say, when you're swimming in a culture um, where the majority of what constitutes media and social media is advocating for a particular viewpoint, you imagine that you are very much alone if you are um, retaining a biblical worldview, uh, and, and that's just because the the percentage shift in the culture has been very dramatic and it's happened in a very short period of time. But as Ben says, um, you're not alone and you're not wrong. Um, this is when recognizing the universal nature of the church is really important. Our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are not confused about this. Um, and so let us be mindful that we are a part of um, uh, not just a global but a universal body of believers um, and we might have to cling to that as the viewpoint um, in terms of a biblical worldview uh, is is increasingly outnumbered at least in in terms of what the media presses forward so just just be mindful of that just because one group of people is pressing some something forward does not make it the truth with a capital t um, and we want to be people who are pursuing the goodness, beauty, and truth of God. Um, that is, that's, that's transcendental. Like it, it, it exists no matter what the circumstances are in, uh, in the place or time that you happen to inhabit. So Ben, as always, thank you so much. It's always a delight to talk with you. Thanks for phoning it in from Washington, D.C. this morning. We appreciate your being with us here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: Thanks so much, Carmen. God bless you.
0: Likewise. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio.
2: God so loved this world. He gave his only son. whoever would believe
0: will never die. All right, is there anything that is a uh, stumbling block so today, today, today for you? I want you to just consider that for just a moment because you're thinking about the day that lies ahead. Um, maybe as you think about the day that is now past, did you stumble over something yesterday? <clears throat> You know fall fall flat on your face in relationship to something or in a conversation with someone um, did you fall short of the gospel? I mean, we all do, we all do and so today, as um you know as you're you're thinking about how you're gonna walk your faith out there into the world that God so loves and do so in ways that honor Jesus, um let me just offer a, a reminder here if we're walking at the pace of the spirit. So we're walking at the pace of grace. Um, and we're yoked to Christ. Like, right? If we're actually yoked to Christ, like what point is it to try to pull ahead of him <laughs> under that yoke? And if we're walking by faith and we're walking in the spirit, like we're much less likely to stumble and fall. And even if we do stumble and fall, when we're yoked to Christ, guess what? We don't fall flat on our faces because he upholds us. So I'm just going to leave that as an encouragement today. Um, If you are struggling, if you feel like you're stammering and stumbling in your walk of faith, check the yoke this morning. Be sure you're yoked to Christ. Walk by faith walk in the power of the Spirit, walk at the pace of grace, and see what kind of day you have. Matthew Bennett's going to join us next. Um, He teaches at Cedarville University. We've talked to him recently um, about um, his reflections as a former missionary, but we're going to talk with him next. We're going to actually revisit a book um, from a couple of years ago that we talked with Matthew about, 40 Questions About Islam. Now, I grant you that the first time that I had this conversation with Matthew, my mom thought it was 40 questions about your mom. It's not. It's not. Mom, if you're listening right now, this is not 40 questions about you. This is Matthew Bennett's book, 40 Questions About Islam, and we're going to till a little of this soil uh, afresh as our Muslim neighbors enter into Ramadan on the 22nd of this month, and many of us don't even know what that is. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining us now, Matthew Bennett from Cedarville University. He is a former missionary. We're revisiting his book today, 40 Questions About Islam. So if my mom is listening, mom, these are not 40 questions about you. These are 40 questions about Islam. Matt, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen.
2: Hey, thank you, Carmen. Great to be with you.
0: My mom was super confused the first time that you and I talked about this because she didn't hear any questions about herself.
2: I remember that.
0: (laughs) No, it's crazy. All right. So um, we're talking about this in the lead up to Ramadan, which starts on the 22nd of March. So maybe we should start there. Um, When we talk about practices or the practice of of Islam, um, part of that is in relationship to holy days. Talk with us about Ramadan and how it fits into all of that.
2: Yeah, so Ramadan is basically 30 days in a row, according to the Islamic calendar, in which the Muslim community around the world dedicates themselves to fasting, uh, from uh from eating food or drinking uh drinking beverages from sunup to sundown. Um, it's connected to some of the stories in Muhammad's life that are told in the Islamic traditions and alluded to in the Quran uh but basically it's a a time where they flip their calendar on its head and they seek to uh be more attentive and attuned to spiritual things hoping to uh, both curry god's favor um and also uh, during the last 10 days there's a special night called the 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 night of power which is supposed to correspond to the day that Uh, Muhammad began revealing, gaining revelations. And so um, it's a special night where there's thought to be additional forgiveness and and blessings available to those who are caught in prayer.
0: So, um, you know, when I think of 30 days of fasting, um, or in this case, it's like an intermittent fasting. So the break of the fast would happen following sundown each night. But is there also some rhythm to like the breaking of the fast, are there are there points along the way where we might expect in our own communities for our Muslim neighbors to be having particular celebrations?
2: Yeah. So every night there is a, a sense of celebration. And at least in the places that we lived, um, it was a, a jubilant time. I mean, people were really excited to have made it through another day. Um uh, throughout the Middle East it's really hot. So going during the sun up hours without water is a, a pretty, pretty tall order. And so to be able to break the fast is a, a joy filled occasion. And a lot of times, especially after the first few days when people tend to celebrate the breaking of the fast uh, more with their immediate nuclear family, you begin to see people doing the, the breaking of the fast in public. Sometimes out in the streets, they'll set up a a, a line of tables and just come serve food for whoever. Whoever in the community would would join them and uh, it tends to be a a time of of real celebration uh, that they made it through another day and uh, they've they've done a hard thing together.
0: Would it be um, intrusive to join in?
2: most of the time i mean what what we found was our, our muslim friends were incredibly hospitable and uh most of the time uh, at, at least in those muslim majority contexts where there was a a public breaking of the fast uh, there was a a warm invitation and so uh, for our for our team there we wanted to make sure that as we sought to hold out the gospel we were uh we were finding uh, opportunities to um, in, enjoy some camaraderie with with our Muslim neighbors and friends, while also talking about fasting and prayer in a way that does exhibit more of the intimacy that Christian prayer invites as we boldly come before the, the throne of one who we don't merely refer to as master, but actually have the audacious freedom to call father. Um, so we would oftentimes join in with them um, and uh, break the fast, but all the while trying to encourage them that there's there's something probably innate that they are seeking to uh, seeking to fulfill in their their fasting and their their prayer and their heightened spirituality, but that uh, Islam actually doesn't allow for an intimate relationship with their creator in the way that Christianity has this unthinkable invitation to be adopted as sons and daughters and to come before the the throne crying out "Father um, in what is an audacious but but beautiful way.
0: So I'm so glad that you brought up um the topic of adoption um and and with that then the subject of uh, of inheritance um so i I came to this um i didn't know this i didn't know that that in Islam there is no um, theology of adoption that that's mm. not a part of of they don't recognize adoption even as a legal status in Islam. I didn't sure. know that. Um, no. So I learned it because this fatwa was issued by the religious affairs directorate in Turkey. Um, and it was in relationship to a question, which I'm what I'm going to un to unpack is what is a fatwa who issues them? Like how hmm. does, what authority does this have? But it, it it did come in answer to a question. So the question is raised by people who are, Um, you know, housing and interested then in, quote unquote, adopting these children Mm. orphaned by the earthquake. Mm. And so they ask the question about adoption. And so while the uh, Religious Affairs Directorate is praising the aid and the care of the orphans, it then says, you know, adoption has no legal status. And so then they go on to explain how that might be remedied. And, you know, tragically, one of the things that they offer in answer is, you know, you could marry them, Well, obviously that run, runs afoul of uh, much modern thinking. So, um, right. But the, I think that what they were getting after was they can receive an inheritance if they're married into your family, but we don't have a theology where by which they could be adopted into your family. So I just felt like it's a wide open door for Christians, but maybe talk with us a little bit about, you know, like what's a fatwa? Who issues it? What kind of authority does it have? What are the sources of authority in Islam? All of these questions arise.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a cluster of things. Um, First off, a fatwa is typically something that's issued by a religious authority in some sort of a recognized um, Islamic court or uh, legal entity um, where there would be people who serve as qadis or as judges who would have the uh, recognized authority to issue a fatwa. Um, Now, the the interesting thing is that though those things do come from somebody who is recognized sort of socially as having some authority and legitimacy to make such a declaration there is a real autonomy within islam that that doesn't really recognize formal central authority figures who can make declarations for the entire community of islam or the the ummah so oftentimes these uh, these fatwas will be uh, issued by a community that both recognizes an a Sharia-influenced government in a more public sense, as well as recognizing some Islamic courts. So then when the Islamic courts make a particular ruling, such as this one on uh, the uh, inability for somebody to formally and officially adopt someone, that will be ratified by the, the quote-unquote state government. But those lines get blurred pretty significantly within Islam, where there's there's not as much distinction between like church and state, if you can use those categories, because uh, Islam is intended to permeate all of life, uh, both public and private, and religious. And uh, if if there were a, a concept of the the secular, and so uh, there's a sense in which those fatwas are not uh, religiously binding um, in a way that could be. Uh, you know, that it's not like papal authority. Um, However, uh, it is something that oftentimes gets meted out by the, the state laws.
0: Okay. That is so helpful. Um, And in that, so many other questions are raised, right? So um, let's, right. Let's come back to this question of authority in just a moment um, because you have surfaced for us, the Quran, Sharia, clerics, Um, and this, uh, I I would use this language and I don't know, even know if it's quite accurate, but that Islam is this like totalizing system, even beyond a Christian understanding. Um, we are talking with Matthew Bennett, most recently, um, his book, Hope for American Evangelicals, a missionary perspective on restoring our broken house. So good. And we talked with him about that a couple of weeks ago. And so, um, thought, Hey, really good to have Matthew back, uh, and continue with him a little bit deeper dive into his 40 questions about Islam, um, because it's almost Ramadan. And lots of us um, as Christians don't know much about our Muslim neighbors. And so how do we love them well in the midst of one of their really significant um, holy seasons? So you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit myfaithradio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. God
1: so loved the world that he gave his one and only son.
0: We're talking with Matthew Bennett, he's a former missionary, he teaches at Cedarville University. His first book, um, that at least that I remember. It may not be your first book, but 40 Questions About Islam, um, which we are revisiting today. And then most recently, we talked with Matthew a couple of weeks ago about his new book, Hope for American Evangelicals, A Missionary Perspective on Restoring Our Broken House. Both excellent resources. Matthew, we have a question from Walter, who's on our text line this morning. Um, This this provokes me to ask a larger question. Walter's specific question is about gift giving. Is there an appropriate gift maybe to um, offer to my Muslim uh, friend? Um, But maybe even a broader question, is there a greeting um, with which I should be greeting my Muslim neighbors during Ramadan?
2: Yeah, no that's great. Um so especially if you have um uh, Muslim friends who have recently uh, relocated to your neighborhood uh, from the Middle East or a place where there are um different customs, gift giving across the board is going to be a, a much bigger deal than it tends to be in the West. So if you go to visit someone at their house or You know not just a housewarming but if you go over for a dinner party or just want to uh, come over for tea um, coming with some sort of a gift um, a small one is is a gesture of uh, of real um, it would be something that they would expect but definitely would appreciate as you've taken the time to consider some of their customs so if you came over with some some nice tea or uh, some sweets something like that uh, would be very appropriate In Ramadan, one of the ways that most Muslims first break the fast will be eating dates, um, sugared dates or dried dates, something of that nature. And uh, that tends to be associated with uh, some of the traditions that associate uh, Muhammad's breaking of the fast with with the consumption of some sort of a date. So that would be traditionally um, in, in the groove of what they would expect as you would come over in terms of just greeting somebody the the islamic uh, way of of greeting a person on the street is salamu alaikum most of our uh, most of our christian friends in the middle east would greet their neighbors not with the full islamic salamu alaikum but rather with a a simple salam that's both uh, distinct enough to not necessarily be bringing in some of the Islamic assumptions that come with that greeting, uh, but it's also easier to remember for somebody who may not be uh conversant in, in Arabic. So, okay, Salam. is that like shalom?
0: Is that like shalom to Jews?
2: There's there's some connection to that, yeah, okay. Um, Salam is actually the same word that uh, is at the the root of Islam and Muslim, ah, so ah. it can be connected. Some some will connect it to like the concept of peace, but others will connect it to the concept of submission.
0: Ah, thank you. That's so helpful. Yeah. Um, okay, so in terms of gifts, you know, as a person who might be interested in bringing something, um, let's talk a little bit about halal am I saying mm. that correctly like yes. right because uh-huh. there's some things I wouldn't take because I wouldn't know uh, if they were made
2: correctly sure yeah that's a that's a very good um, very good question like I said earlier with something like tea or dates you're gonna be you're gonna be safe um, but anything that would be processed in a some sort of a plant that would have um, that would have Pork products uh, would certainly be something that would break the the dietary restrictions that our Muslim friends have, and so most places will have in a grocery store something of a a section that would have halal uh, halal goods, or you could go to an international food store and and find something there that would be uh, obviously marked as halal, um, and so that that is a good thing to keep in mind. Yeah.
0: All right. That's just so good. Um, all right. We, we don't have time to unpack, you know, everything related to Islam, but we're going to direct people to your book. Matthew Bennett's got a book, 40 questions about Islam. Um, I would just highly recommend that to you. If you've got ongoing questions, uh, the list of terms in the back of the book is really helpful and fantastic. Um, we have a question from a listener and this is about, um, Allah, Allah, mm. Allah. Mm-hmm. So this is the name that Muslims use for God? And the question is, um, you know, is this the same God as the God mm. of the Bible? Yeah.
2: So uh, that's been wrestled over for 1400 years. Um, so in the next 10 minutes, let's land the plane on that. For, <laughs> uh, But I think the question, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God, is uh, in some ways a bad question on the surface if you pushed for an answer i would say there are significant enough distinctions in who this god reveals himself to be that i would say no there's there's two different conceptions of what and who god is but i think it, to be a little bit clearer uh, there's a chapter in the book in the 40 questions book about this where i i give four other questions that i think are more helpful and more clear and i as a Baptistically uh, informed person, I alliterated the the four questions with eyes. First, you've got the idiom question, can we use the word Allah to refer to God? Now, as an English speaker, I would not necessarily recommend that you start using Allah because that is making a distinct decision um, in in order to identify the one who you're referring to as God by uh, a term that is not the, the typical term that you would naturally use. However, if you find yourself in the Middle East, you're going to find that your Christian and even Jewish friends are very comfortable with using the word Allah. And that's simply because it's the word, it's much like the the Elohim word in Hebrew that is a generic term for God. In fact, in Arabic, it's just the, the noun, ilaha, plus the definite article, the. So Allah just means the God. So it's a monotheistic affirmation. In fact, most of our Muslim friends would not necessarily uh, affirm the fact that Allah is God's name, because one of the things that distinguishes Islamic theology from Jewish and Christian theology is that the assumption is that God is forever transcendent and finally unknowable. So we can know some things about what God has done, but certainly it would be a transgression of his unknowability for him to do something as personal and intimate as giving a personal name. So Allah simply means the God. So at the idiom level, we could, if we're speaking Arabic, uh, use that same term and just need to fill it with biblical meaning. Uh, there's an idea question, like what does it mean that there is one God who is creator, who's sovereign, who's master over all? At the most basic level, our Muslim friends and, and the, the Bible share that conviction that there is one uh, one God who exists as creator and sovereign. But when we start asking beyond just the basic idea of who this one God is in contrast to uh, a polytheism, and we start asking what is the identity of this God, we begin to very quickly see that there are uh, two parting paths in Islam and Christianity as we describe who this God has actually revealed himself to be in the quran and in islamic theology at least proper islamic theology even the things that we might recognize as attributes of god his mercifulness the fact that he's beneficent um, that he's gracious and things of that nature these are not actually even considered to be attributes or references to the nature of god because again that's inscrutable that's something we can't know these are things that describe ways that god can be seen to act but that doesn't actually reveal God himself. So that stands in wild distinction to a God who would not only make himself known verbally and through his actions in, in history, but he's a coming down sort of God, coming down to commune with Moses in the burning bush and to give him his personal name. And then most clearly coming down in the incarnation, the sending of the son to take on flesh so that as John says, as we behold him, we behold the glory as of the one and only So the intimacy and the actual knowledge of this God who's revealed himself in Christianity is a far cry from what Islam is going to present as a God who is far off, who remains as master to his servants who he's created, but really has no intimate and proximate relationship to them. But the Mm -hmm. final question, I think, for Christians is the most important one, and that's the inverted question. Because the question, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God, is a man-centered question. We've got Muslims and Christians and what they intend uh, in in that framework of the the original question. But the far more pressing question is, does the one true God receive the worship of Muslims and Christians uh, alike? that's a mm, theocentric so question and that's the one that we I think biblically have the most clarity and the most urgency in answering is that no so nobody's good. worship is acceptable to god apart from having their hands washed their heart cleansed their sins forgiven by the blood and once for all sacrifice of their great mediator jesus
0: matthew that's so good it's so rich it's so helpful thank you so much um matthew bennett uh, author of Forty Questions About Islam, also the author of Hope for American Evangelicals. You can connect with him at Cedarville University. Matthew, thank you so much.
2: Absolutely, thank you, Carmen.
0: What a gift! All right, um, we've got uh, uh, we've got more coming up next uh, next hour here on Mornings with Carmen. This is um, three sixteen March the sixteenth, so we're going to lead off with a conversation about Good News Day. What do you do on Good News Day? What might you lift up? What are some of the 316 verses in the Bible? Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support.